in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, if you would. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. We are making our way through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. And we began this chapter a couple of weeks ago with John, chapter number 7. I want to invite you back to the service this evening at 6 o'clock. I begin a brand new sermon series tonight on the life of King Saul from the Old Testament, calling it the Saul Syndrome. And we'll be in the life of Saul for several weeks on Sunday night. And so we'll be back in your place tonight at 6 o'clock. The Gospel of John chapter number 7. And I want to begin reading in verse number 11. And I'm going to read down to verse number 31. John chapter 7, verse 11 through verse number 31. The Bible says the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? There was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered to them, said, My doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? He's referring to something that happened in John 5. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know whence this know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not, but I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these, which this man hath done? Well, look at this passage for just a little bit. I'm going to end up in verse 24. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The scene in John chapter 7 is in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a week-long feast that Israel observed every year in the fall of the year. It is one of the seven feasts that 
Um, they were given by Israel in Leviticus chapter 23. It had, Brother Ben, you can take that off. I'm not there yet. It had um, great historical and spiritual and prophetical significance. You may be interested in knowing that the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the feasts, I believe, that would be reinstated during the millennial reign of Christ. There may be others, but I am sure that that feast will be brought back and that all the Gentile nations will come to Jerusalem and worship the king every year. And these feasts of Israel were where every male Jew of 20 years in age was to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. There were three. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, there was Feast of Tabernacles. You didn't celebrate this in your village. You, you came to Jerusalem and you celebrated it in the temple. And so Jerusalem would be packed from people uh, from all over the world, and it would be a week of festivities and feasts and religious services and, and the like. And as far as chronology is concerned, we are only about six months away from the crucifixion when we come to John chapter 7. We know that because Christ would be crucified at Passover, and Passover is six months after the Feast of Tabernacles. So though we are only in chapter 7 of John's gospel, we are nearing the end of Christ's earthly ministry. John has traced the steps of Jesus back and forth from Judea to Galilee to Judea to Galilee, back and forth. And when Jesus leaves Galilee in John 7 and verse 1 and comes to Jerusalem, he will not go back to Galilee. In fact, um, from John chapter 7 through John chapter 11, everything takes place in Jerusalem and the surrounding vicinity. And then in John 12 and verse 1, you read that six days before the Passover, Jesus goes to Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, goes into the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That is six days before Passover. So that's the Passion Week, what we call the Passion Week. And so that, that begins that last week right there before the crucifixion. And that tells you that John's gospel is theological. It is not biological, but it is theological. In fact, he tells you in the very first verse that he has a theme, and his theme is the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And throughout John's gospel, he's going to bring a number of witnesses forward to testify to the deity of Jesus Christ. And none of the witnesses are any greater than the witness of Jesus Christ himself. If you go back and you read through this gospel so far, you will hear Jesus say that he came down from heaven, that he was sent from the Father, that he is one with the Father, that he is the only way to God, that he has the right to be worshipped on the same level as the Father, that he has the power to give life and raise dead. Uh, you will hear him say that he's the judge that will judge all men at the end of the day, that he can forgive sin. You will hear him say that he is greater than the Sabbath and he's greater than Moses and he's greater than the temple. And as you can imagine, that, that, that brings both opinion and opposition from the nation. Opinion. Everything from he is uh, the Messiah to he's demon possessed. He, he is either from God or he is a blasphemer. And then opposition. From that incident in John 5, where he healed that impotent man on the Sabbath day, from that incident on, they wanted him dead. 
Because they said that he blasphemed and that he said he was one with the Father. He didn't bow down to their rules and their regulations and their silly Sabbath restrictions that they'd added to the law. And nobody denied the power of his miracles, but plenty of people got upset at his preaching. And John makes it clear in the gospel that the majority of people that interacted with him did not believe in him. Back up, if you would, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you would, and look at verse number 10. John 1 and verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Look at chapter 3. John chapter 3, look at verse number 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Look at verse number 32. Verse 32, what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Look at chapter 5. We're just surveying. Chapter 5 and verse 38. Ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. And so on and on did it go so that in six months from right now, they're going to be demanding that Christ be crucified. So, so John brings us to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. That's the scene of John chapter 7. Jesus has been out of the public eye for some time in Galilee. And his brothers believe that, 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 that he needs to make a grand appearance. We found out two weeks ago that his brothers do not actually believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the one that is going to break the yoke of Roman bondage over the nation. But if you are, if you are, then what better time and place to announce yourself than Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they come to the Lord Jesus and they say, listen, you need to force the issue. You need to go to Jerusalem and you need to do something big Basically, it's put up or shut up time. That, that's their mentality. But Jesus does not cater to his faithless brethren. And so the brothers, they go to the feast like all the other Jews, and they go alone, and Jesus tarries. But about midway through the feast, the Bible tells us in verse number 11, that halfway through the feast, Jesus appears in Jerusalem. He doesn't come in with an entourage. He doesn't come in performing a miracle like he did the last time making a splash. Because he knows that when he comes in, that his presence is going to cause a great disturbance. And that is exactly what happens. Because even before Jesus gets to town, he is the talk of the town. Everybody's buzzing. They're wondering if Jesus is going to be there. The religious leaders, they're on the lookout. They've got their spies watching because they're not going to allow him to come in and to make a scene, make a disturbance like he did the last time. There's no way that they're going to lose control. So he's the talk of the town before he gets to town. The common people, they're whispering, they're murmuring one to another. What do you think about this Jesus? And in the verses that I read to you, John gives us about seven different opinions about Christ. Look, if you would, at verse number 11, and notice that, first of all, some argued about him. Look at verse number 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? There was much murmuring about the people concerning him. 
Some said he's a good man, others said nay, but he deceiveth the people. Whenever something is in the news and it dominates the news cycle, everybody wants to say something about it. A couple of years ago when COVID was all of the news, all right? No matter who you talk to, somebody had something to say about COVID. It's dangerous, it's a scam, it, whatever it might, but everybody had an opinion about it. And whatever is dominating the news right now, everybody has an opinion. Well, the news of the time was Jesus. Three years of preaching, three years of traveling, the land doing miracles, and everybody had an opinion. And there was not a man in Israel who didn't think something about him. Here's two of the opinions. He's a good man. No, he's not a good man. He deceiveth the people. And we might look at the two prevailing views. He's a good man, he's a deceiver, and say, well, the first one is certainly better than the second one. But I tell you, if the best that you can conclude is that he is a good man, then that opinion is no better than the second opinion. If he is just a good man, then he is also a deceiver because he claimed to be a whole lot more than just a good man. If he is only good and not God, then he's not even good. All right, let me say it again. If he was only good, but not God, then he wasn't even good. Now, now most, most, probably, most people here were, were probably raised like me. We were raised in Christianity. I've been to Baptist church since I was two weeks old, got saved as a young child, and as far as, as I was old enough to know, I've never believed anything else about Jesus Christ than what the Bible says. I've always believed that Jesus was the Son of God. I've always believed that he was a perfect man. I've always believed that he was the Savior. I've always believed that. It would be so foreign for me to believe anything else about Jesus Christ because I've been taught that all of my life. It is the it is a very part of, of my life. But you know, we live in a very deceived world. Don't assume that everybody believes like you do. In fact, we, we, in fact, we live in a world that's not just deceived on spiritual things, they're deceived on physical things as well. We live in a warped world. Listen, listen there, are, there are educated people, smart people. There are educated people who literally believe with all of their heart that all of this got here through evolution. Big bang. There are people that believe that. There are people, smart, educated people, who literally believe that there are more than two genders and that you can choose your gender. They literally believe that. They literally believe that the baby is a fetus, it's not a person, therefore abortion is justifiable up to the point of death. People that literally believe that. And I see they are deceived. Somebody help me a little bit, all right? But the greatest deception of all is to be deceived about Jesus Christ. But if you ask the man, you go out and you ask the man on the street, what does he think of Jesus? He's basically got one or two opinions. Good man, not a good man. 
He's a good man or he was a deceiver. If you believe that he was a deceiver, you will die in your sins. If you believe he is just a good man, you will die in your sins. So there's arguments. There's, there's discussions going on in the corners of Jerusalem. Some argued about him. But then notice in verse 14 that some were astonished at him. Look at verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, now they, they, didn't, they weren't saying that he was unlearned, that he was ignorant. That, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is he didn't have formal training in the seminaries and the schools of the rabbis. He, he doesn't have, he doesn't have the proper credentials. He doesn't have degrees. He, he, he's not college educated. He doesn't have any letters after his name. He didn't go to our approved schools. A rabbi was a teacher. That's what, that's what a rabbi means. He was a teacher. He was a man who had studied the law. He studied the writings of the other rabbis and the traditions and, 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 and he would teach. And, and when you had a large gathering like this in the temple courtyard, there were rabbis that were set up and, and they would have a little following and they would teach. And, and, and maybe you liked how one rabbi taught or you, well, that rabbi, he really had insight into the law and really could pull it out. And, and so, so they, would have, they would have crowds and, 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 and all these rabbis teach it. But how would you like it? If you had spent years going to rabbi school, studied the law, studied the traditions, honed your skill, I mean, got the papers duly ordained, I mean, you've done your work, all right? And then some unknown Galilean that hadn't been to school, he's not a doctor, he, he, he don't have any credentials, and he comes in and he's drawing a bigger crowd than you are. How would you like that? I, I, in, in, in our Baptist circles, we, we have some preachers that are well-known preachers, have big-name preachers. And when they come in town, everybody just goes and hears them preach because they're, they're good preachers. We, we like that, all right? I, I don't know how other denominations have that. I don't know if Assemblies of God or whatever, they have you know, famous preachers and then everybody goes and hears them. Well, over the centuries, Judaism, they had rabbis who were highly esteemed. And the more esteemed you were, then the more quoted that you were. He'd be like a Baptist preacher quoting Spurgeon. It was, you know, Spurgeon said this, or, or Martin Luther wrote this, or, or, or quoting some of, the, some of those big names. And, and when you quote, that says that you're well read. That, that says that, you, that you've read after these guys. And so what rabbis would do is rabbis would quote other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and, and then that rabbi, he's reading, he's quoting what another rabbi said. And, and, and so, so they're quoting because it gives you some credibility. I, I, I followed this rabbi. Well, Jesus comes along, he doesn't quote no rabbi. In fact, look what Jesus says in verse 16. He said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. I didn't get my doctrine out of the book of rabbi quotes. I got my doctrine from God. Huh? Got, got mine from my father. Well, that's better than quoting a rabbi, isn't it? And when people heard him preach, they were astonished because the Bible says that he taught as one having authority. They had never heard anybody have such insight into the scripture as this man. Well, why not? He wrote it. And it's about him. Huh? 
So of course he has insight into it. But they've never heard somebody speak with such knowledge and such wisdom and such insight. You know, there's people who love to study the, the teachings of Jesus just like the, the greatest rabbis. There are people who, who study the moral teachings of the Lord Jesus and, and the moral teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and they believe there's great wisdom in all of that, but they don't believe he's God. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the divine. They, they just think that his words are great moral teachers. They are astonished at him. But, but then notice that in verse 19 that some made accusation against him. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep with the law? Why go you about to kill me? Now, now that would be like a slap in the face. Because they prided themselves in keeping the law. In fact, they kept more than the law. They, they kept thousands of traditions that were added on to the law. And Jesus said, you pride yourself in keeping the law. In actuality, none of you keep the law. He said, he said, for example, why go you about to kill me? Had you ever heard of that commandment? Thou shalt not kill. He said, why you go about to kill me? And they answered and said, thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Ain't nobody trying to kill you. No, this is common people. You say, we're, trying, we're not trying to kill you. You're insane to think that. But what an indictment of the heart. Because murder was in their heart. Because six months from now, these people right here, they're going to be screaming, crucify him, crucify him. There is murder in the heart and they don't even recognize it. And they say that you're demon possessed to think we're trying to kill you. What an accusation. In verse 21 through 24, some became angry at him. He says in verse 21, he said, I've done one work and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers. Ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. And are, are ye angry at me? Because I've made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day. What's he talking about? That one work that he mentions, that's healing that impotent man in John chapter 5. And he did that on the Sabbath day because the man took his bed and he walked on the Sabbath day. That's what got the whole thing started. That's what they're angry about. So here's basically what Jesus says. Here's the lunacy of your anger. Circumcision, circumcision for every male boy was at eight days. But what if eight days fell on the Sabbath? Well, they made an exception to the Sabbath rules. No, you could circumcise on the Sabbath on the, because it's the eighth day in that special circumstance. Jesus said, hey, wait a minute. If you can suspend your Sabbath rules for circumcision, he said, all I did is suspend it not for circumcision, but for a man that's been waiting on a miracle for 38 years. I suspended it. So why are you angry at me? I don't have time to preach on this, but it shows you how irrational anger makes a man. When a man is controlled by his anger, he strikes out in violence. He may even kill somebody in his anger. These religious men, they are full of anger. They have worked themselves up into a murderous rage, and they can't see the lunacy of the whole matter. Some are angry at him. Notice quickly, some were ambivalent toward him. Look at verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? 
But lo, he speaketh boldly, they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? How be it we know this man whence he is? But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now in verse number 20, in verse number 20, the people say, nobody's trying to kill you. But now some of the people say, isn't Jesus the man the elders trying to kill? And here's what I believe. I believe there are Jews in Jerusalem at that time that are from the dispersion. They scattered all over the world. And they've come into Jerusalem. They probably don't know everything that's been happening in Israel in the last couple of years. But there are also Jews from that vicinity, from Jerusalem. And they know what's been, they're aware of what's been happening. And they're confused. We know that the temple police want to crucify him. They want to put him to death. Then why aren't they doing that? Why isn't somebody arresting him? Why isn't somebody placing hands on him? Why are they letting him just keep teaching? And here's what they think. They think in verse 26, do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? I wonder if they have some inside information. <laughs> Could they believe that he's the Messiah? I wonder if they have become convinced that he's the one that we are to look for. And maybe they're not doing anything because, and then as soon as that thought comes in their mind, it leaves their mind. Because they say in verse 27, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. You see, there was a tradition in Israel that said when the Messiah come, he's coming gloriously. He's going to come and he's going to ride in Jerusalem. He's going to make a grand appearance. This man comes from Nazareth. There is no way our Messiah comes from lowly Nazareth. Now, if they had read Micah 5 and verse 2, they might have found out where he's coming from. But they are indecisive. They're ambivalent toward him. Notice quickly in verse 30, there are some that are antagonistic against him. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hold hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Do, do you see how many opinions are being bannered about? He's a good man. He's a deceiver. He's a devil. He could be the Messiah. He can't be because we know where he came from. And the religious elders, they want to arrest him, but something is holding them back. And some citizens want to just leave him alone. And other citizens say he's causing trouble. He's a deceiver. Why don't they do something about him? Well, I'll tell you why. Because his hour was not yet come. I don't know about restraints from a human standpoint, but there are divine restraints on them. They can't do anything until heaven says it's time. They're antagonistic against him. But notice quickly in verse 31, some accepted him. Many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? There wasn't many people, but some people said, if he's not the Messiah, then who can be? Right. I mean, surely there's not going to come by somebody that has more power than he does. Right. Somebody's going to come and do more miracles than he does. And it's not saving faith, but it's not outright rejection. Here, here, they're willing to give Jesus a try. If it's not him, who else could it be? And you know there are people who want to have a little bit of Jesus and see what he can do. I'll try him and see what he can do. And, 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 and if he doesn't turn out, then that's fine. No, no, no loss. They were accepting of him. But I want you to come back very quickly to verse 24. This is the verse that has arrested my attention this week. Jesus says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. 
In this context, it is an indictment of their judgment against him. Everybody, everybody has made a judgment about Christ. Do you see that in the passage? Everybody has an opinion. And they have judged according to outward appearance. He hasn't been taught in the schools of the rabbis. He doesn't have the proper credentials. He doesn't come in in a blaze of glory like we thought he would. He is from lowly Nazareth. He, he, he is not the kind of Messiah that we have created in our mind. And Jesus says, don't judge by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And you and I are people that are impressed with appearances, aren't we? People are swayed, me and you, people are swayed by how another person looks, by, 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 how, by what we perceive on the outside, how they appear to be. If you see somebody driving a fancy sports car, you immediately think they got a lot of money. It might be they have a lot of debt. You're judging by appearance, huh? You, you see the Hollywood star or starlet on television, you think, boy, they have got the good life. You don't see the drugs and the depression behind the scenes. A young boy becomes infatuated with a beautiful girl. You better see past the lipstick and the short skirt. You better see the ugly disposition or you got a long life ahead of you. Because things are not what, all, what they always appear to be. I think about Samuel coming to Jesse's house to, to anoint one of those boys as the next king of Israel. And all the good looking boys are passed by. They finally bring David in from the field. But everybody knows David is not the choice because he does not look like a king. He doesn't have the appearance. And the Lord says to Samuel, the Lord seeth, uh, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And Jesus says, judge not according to appearance but judge righteous judgment. And I've been stuck on that phrase all week long. Righteous judgment. Three thoughts I'm done. Number one, make righteous judgment about life. Make righteous judgment about life. As a Christian, you have to be able to judge righteously about the world around you. No, I could run off and preach on a thousand, chase a thousand rabbits right now, all right? Can you, can, listen, listen, can you judge that music that you listen to with righteous judgment? Can you judge those friends with righteous judgment? Those things that you watch on the internet, are you judging that with righteous judgment? Somebody says, oh, wait a minute, preacher. Matthew 7 and verse 1, judge not. And that's become the world's favorite verse. They don't know who said it. They don't know who said it to. They don't know where it's found. But somewhere, somewhere the Bible says, judge not. And isn't it interesting that the world that tells you not to judge, judges you? The most hateful, intolerant people in the world are people that think you are hateful and intolerant. Amen. Don't die on me. I'm not done yet, all right? Judge not. That, that's, the, that's the verse that the whole world knows. And so many people read that and they read no further. And so all judgment and all criticism and all dogmatism, it is wrong and you are not to do that. And they read that because that's what they want to read. I'm going to tell you something. You had better learn to pass judgment on things like and other people. You, you, better, you better learn how to do some judging. 
And if you actually read the passage and you think about it, Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's actually saying learn how to judge. You, you have to read the passage. He's not saying that it's wrong to judge. He's saying it's wrong to judge the wrong way. And a nation and a church and a people and a family, you cannot survive. You cannot survive without good judgment. Nothing wrong with calling it black and white. Right? There are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And you better know the difference in the two. The Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. You've got to learn how to judge life. So here it is. As a Christian, as a Christian, you ought to be able to look at everything you see and everything you hear and every person that you pass by and judge that righteously. I'm not talking about being judgmental. I'm not talking about having a critical spirit. I'm not talking about that. But having the discernment of the Holy Spirit to know this is good or this is bad. Amen. Amen. Since I'm the one preaching, I'll just say it myself. I can look. I have the righteous judgment to look at Disney as the most woke company in the world and know that the next 10 movies that they produce will not be worth taking your dog to go see. That's what you call righteous judgment. Amen. I, I have the discernment of the Holy Spirit to, to know that every song that Nashville produces in the country music industry, it promotes sin, promotes alcohol, promotes promiscuity, and it's not worth hearing. I, that, that's what you call righteous judgment. And some of you this morning, you are dying spiritually. You are dying spiritually because you don't know how to judge things righteously. You're judging by appearance. You, you got to learn how, how you, you got to learn to make righteous judgment about life. But then I say, you got to make righteous judgment about yourself. Because some people are so good at judging others, but they never judge themselves. The heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. And the person that will deceive the most is you. Your heart will make a first class hypocrite out of you is what it will do. Your heart will tell you that everybody else is wrong and you're the only person that's right. But can you look inside your heart? Your heart. And you can, can you be honest with your motives and your interests and your flesh and your carnality? Can you, it, it, is one, it is one thing to be a hypocrite and know it. To come to church and play a little religious game in front of all the whole people and you know that that is a charade. It is a whole different level of deception when you have convinced yourself that you're spiritual but in reality you are a hypocrite. When your heart is full of carnality and dishonesty and deceit and lust and you will not even recognize it. You have to make judgment about yourself. Look here real quick at Matthew 25. You have to make righteous judgment about yourself. Matthew chapter 20, or Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking to these hypocrites. He didn't have anything good to say about them. And just look at Matthew 23, look at verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Do you see, do you see, do you, do you see the contrast? You may clean the outside, outside of the cup of the platter, but within, within, they are full of extortion and excess. Do you see? There's, there's only a two-letter difference between outside and inside. He's making a contrast. Outside and inside is what you are on the outside 
the same as what you are on the inside. Is the image that you want me to see, is that the image that you see? Look what he says in verse, he says in verse 26. He, he, he gives, gives this illustration of these dishes in verse 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse that which is within thy cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Look at verse 27. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within. To see the contrast? Appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Make beautiful the sepulcher, but inside it's still full of filth and rottenness. You can paint the headstone and you can plant the flowers, but it doesn't change what lies beneath the ground. Full of life on the outside, dead on the inside. Look at verse 28. Even so you also outwardly appear, appear righteous unto men, but within ye are. Do you see the contrast? Ye appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I'm preaching to me as well. I'm preaching to you. Do you see the contrast between appear and are? You appear, but is that what you are? Huh? A Pharisee is somebody who does not as they appear. You appear, but what are you? Judge yourself. And then I come back to John 7. You have to make righteous judgment about life and make righteous judgment about yourself. But in the context, make righteous judgment about Christ. That's the point of the passage, isn't it? It's to make righteous judgment about Christ. Went through all of the opinions that they had. I mean, I mean they, are, they, they are arguing, they're astonished, they're accepting, they're antagonistic, they're angry, they're ambivalent. They've got all of these opinions. And you have an opinion. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. And righteous judgment is to believe what the Bible says about him. It is to accept him as Savior and it is to follow him as your Lord. Righteous judgment is to give your life to Jesus Christ, to be a Christian so that all the world may know that's righteous judgment. What is your judgment of Jesus Christ? Hey, I hope that you would not say that he's insane. He's a deceiver. He's a blast. I hope that you wouldn't say that. But is he just a good man? I read a lot of biographies. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, two of the founding fathers of our nation. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin were deists. They didn't believe in the divine. They didn't believe that Jesus was deity. They didn't believe he was God. They didn't believe in the miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. You know what they did? They fell into this first group. He's a good man. That's what they believed. They admired him. They talked about him. They wrote about him. Good man, great teachings, moral man, and that is the extent of it all. And if that's all that you can come up with, you'll die in your sins. If he's not God, he's not even good. Make righteous judgment about Christ. I ask you, is he worthy of your heart? I have found him to be all that he claimed to be and so much more. I've found him to be the greatest friend and the wisest counselor and the most comforting, assuring comforter. That's who Jesus is to me.